0: Welcome, Mistakers and Mistakers on Mistakers.co podcast. And do not forget, there is nothing like failure. My name is Flo, like Florian. For the last 10 years, I've been setting up startups from Colombia to Georgia through France and Dubai, going from mobile applications to websites and automation SaaS solutions with always a French touch of digital marketing. After struggling in a lot of aspects and after learning from my own mistakes, I decided to help other entrepreneurs by sharing more stories, learnings, and experiences. Mistakers.co is the weekly podcast where I'm doing the interview of entrepreneurs worldwide. Our main goal is to share their learnings and experiences by commenting their own failures and stories. Far from being an easy task, it will take us through the big and small startups from single entrepreneurs to bigger companies. If you're looking to solve your current problems by learning from others, this podcast is made for you. So join us on and You can also find us on the main podcast platforms like Spotify and iTunes. And don't forget, subscribe to our newsletters to receive the freshest information. And keep in mind, there is nothing like failure. The first season of Mysticus.co is sponsored by Andrew Startup. For the last 12 years, Andrew has been supporting the growth of startups, but don't get me wrong. There is supporting and supporting. Andrew helps dozens of companies and got three, exit, three exits in millions of dollars. His current portfolio includes companies like OLX, Tinder, and Startup Grind. Even though I've been doing the same job for about ten years, I'm consulting him when it comes to the release of new projects or the kickoff of new ventures. When it comes to gross hacking, he's definitely one of the most talented person I've ever met and worked with. Uh, andrew is offering us a fifteen percent exclusive discount on his ground gross hacking course for the listeners of Mystiqueous.co. To benefit from this offer, just visit us at slash andrew slash andrew This course is coming with videos, ready-to-use documents, and most important, one-to-one call with Andrew himself. Welcome uh, on Mistakers.co, today we have the chance of meeting Simon Obermann, who will be discussing with us of one of the most interesting uh, mistakes, if we can say so, failure, if we dare telling it. For entrepreneurs, it's like whenever you're going to start your journey, what's the difference between being an entrepreneur and being a wannabe entrepreneur? It's a huge difference, and Simon today will be here to share his experience with you. Simon, good evening.
1: Good evening, Florian. Thanks for having me. It should be an interesting discussion. Um, I mean, right off the bat, I think you've got it uh, right on the head. I mean, being a entrepreneur is uh, one of the things that keeps on happening around us, uh, especially with the entrepreneurship world being so, uh, uh, growing so much recently.
0: <laughs> it is, and we do hope your experience will be uh, used by the other ones around the globe and the listener of our podcast. Simon, before we start, can you explain us where we are right now? Because It's the most amazing place I've been doing an interview. (laughs) And I'd love people to imagine where we are right now. Photo will be available on the podcast, of course. But tell us where we are.
1: Um, So we're currently in the library of my apartment complex. Uh, We're actually in Jakarta, uh, Indonesia. And we're on top of the Pacific Place Mall. Uh, And uh, if you live on top of the mall, they uh, give you access to this wonderful library that has about five or six meter ceilings high. Um, but a very nice it's not but a little really less useful decor. Uh, but it looks beautiful.
0: Yes, <laughs> right now at the same time I'm sleeping in a box in a hostel in Jakarta and I'm doing the interview in a in a place I just would like to say, you know, like for all my stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, Simon, welcome on the podcast. Uh, Simon, before we before we, we dig into the, the main issue, the main thematic of today, tell us a bit more about yourself. I mean, first question that i love to ask the people on the podcast like do you come from an entrepreneur family or do you come from let's say like a non-entrepreneur family
1: um, i think if we go back uh, more than one generation uh, my grandfather was a theology professor uh and my uh on the one side and my other grandfather was an alcoholic so i guess you know this Slightly entrepreneurial, Um, but uh, I guess if you look at my uh, current parents, my father was a uh, McKinsey uh, consultant for 26 years, I believe. Uh, But my uh, so not as entrepreneurial. But uh, my mother was a little bit more entrepreneurial. Um, She set up a well, she helped set up a uh, what's the right terminology? I gotta get this right, otherwise she's gonna hate me. Uh, It's a a bio. It's a it's a non-GMO seed. Research Development Facility in Israel.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure that right now I have an idea of what it is. But it sounds like
1: entrepreneurs, somehow. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So so uh, all I was trying to say with that, that 50% I guess has an entrepreneurial company on the other side I guess more of a corporate side to it. Um, But uh, the easy question, like, do I come from an entrepreneurial family? A little bit.
0: (laughs) A little bit. But I mean, it makes sense also for people, you know, to get a bit of both visions. Because, like, if on one side you know how easy to be an entrepreneur, from the other one, you know also how easy to be on the other side. Because as an entrepreneur, you need to handle both sides anyway on a daily basis. Yes, I,
1: I'm, I guess I guess you're saying that you're bringing up the interesting concept where it's like there's simple sides kind of to it. There's several sides to kind of like looking at it and making decisions in your life um, uh, that there's, uh, you know, trying to. Uh, you know, try to figure out whether you're an entrepreneur or not is not necessarily something that you can just decide right off the bat. Okay, Well, today I'm an entrepreneur for this and this reason, and then suddenly you're not an entrepreneur anymore. isn't. Um, I feel like it's much more just, you know, what you are actually doing, whether you are or not an entrepreneur. So, I mean,
0: let's dream about <laughs> when you were When you were a kid, when you were five or six years old, what was your dream job? Did you dream about becoming an entrepreneur? Or you want you to be cowboy, astronaut, or just like a state employee?
1: Uh, I had uh, really boring dreams. Uh, it was more about uh, being an adult with uh, financial safety. <laughs> so, and, and I guess uh, growing up with my dad being a consultant, I was very much looking towards being successful in the corporate sector. Uh, and becoming an entrepreneur was not even uh, an option at the time.
0: And uh, So, do you consider like financial safety as being some kind of nightmare for people right now?
1: Uh, it's. What do you mean by nightmare? Uh,
0: I I don't know. It's like you say you had terrible dreams. So, really <laughs> consider this as because I would love to get more financial stability, for I, instance.
1: I I I think more what I meant was terribly boring. Um, I think uh, as as a child and depending on you know how you grow up, you you have certain sense of how you can get financial safety. And uh, I guess to a certain extent, you know, when I was younger, I very much fast realized that I would like to have a certain lifestyle or live in certain places. And the idea was, okay, well, if I'm successful in these things and if I'm a successful banker or whatever, then I can afford those things. So growing up very materialistically based But uh, I learned pretty fast uh, into my later teenage years when I went into university that, Uh, It's not as important, and it's not the only way to you know get things that you want. Um, There's different ways to do things, uh, and you don't have to sit in an office and wear a suit every day to get those things.
0: uh, About the few places because you're definitely talking with the mixed accents. So (laughs) tell us, I mean. First, uh, try to explain briefly where you come from, if there is any answer behind this question. And then I'd love to know in which country you've been living so far. Living means like, in which country at least you've been staying long enough to consider this life the temporary home.
1: Um, okay. I guess as a podcast, I'll bring up the long answer. Usually what people ask is a short version. Um, but basically the long version is my mother is South Korean. Uh, my father is Dutch, but born in America. They both met in high school in Germany, which is another whole long story. Which so, became... Wait, wait, wait.
0: What language did you speak home? Uh,
1: so I speak German to my parents, uh, and uh, but also I know how to speak Dutch. Uh, and my Korean's not as good anymore, uh, and then I started learning English later on. Um, but uh, basically back to kind of what happened is I was born in Frankfurt, uh, and then uh, we moved to South Korea pretty soon after that. So I guess Frankfurt was very temporarily there, so I wouldn't consider myself I mean, lived in Germany, I was just born there. Um, and then we were in Korea from 91 to 99. Um, so that was a home that goes on the list. Uh, and then we moved to the Netherlands where I grew up in The Hague. Uh, I was in high school there from 2000 to 2000 2007, after which I went to boarding school in Wales. For uh, uh, various reasons, uh, and then uh, yeah, and then I was in boarding school in Wales for two years until 2009. Uh, after which I decided I was gonna go and study mathematics in London.
0: <laughs> so okay, it's like whenever, you, whenever you apply for for visa, or whatever it's like. There's a small there's a small square asking like. Nationality or where you come from? What do you put up there? Because right now I feel like there is at least six or seven countries.
1: Well, I guess, I guess the, the, the one thing is that you know we can look at nationalities in different passports, identity. Uh, I think the best way to describe it is that you know, I see myself as definitely Eurasian. Um, obviously, I spent most of my childhood, let's say, in Europe. So uh, I, I, you know, I see myself as a European. Um, leaning Eurasian, now lives in Asia. <laughs> That's
0: the kind of answer I mean. Uh, but I mean, let's say so. Now that you you grew up with this very mixed environment, if you have to go back to only one thing, what will be your totem animal? So if you have to define yourself as only one thing, and these things will be an animal, what animal could represent this kind of mix you have and you carry on with you?
1: Um, I mean. How to define um, an animal within the like, national is I think uh, one of the easy answers out of that is I've had a nickname since I was about uh, 10 years old, which was Panda Man, since my last name is Oberman. And also, I was the only Asian kid, or slightly Asian kid, in my uh, white school in uh, the Netherlands. So, they um, equaled that as to being Chinese. Which makes sense me come I, just of I just kind of always stuck with pandas I guess like the nice thing about it is the white black and asian
0: <laughs> that's the best definition ever white black asian panda I love this one so um Simon Overman uh mix cultural mix international entrepreneurs and uh, we're going to now dig into the the real aspect of the podcast today It's like we want to know more about your entrepreneur experience. So guys, take tuned. We're coming back because now it's time to enjoy the ceiling and an amazing ride that we have tonight before we dig deeper into our podcast thematic for today. Want to kick off your project with the best of the best? Visit mistakers.co slash Andrew, mystakers.co slash Andrew and get an expert in gross hacking by your side. Andrew is offering you step-by-step documents to support the launch of any project from mobile application to website. His course includes video, one-to-one calls and a lot of ready-to-use solutions. Andrew Startup is also offering us an exclusive 15% discount on any of his packages. So don't wait any longer and hire the best of the best. Simon, um, it's time. It's time to dig deeper into the, the main thematic of tonight. We want to know what's the difference between one of the entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. There are two elements that we want to know for you, history. It's like your, your past experience in London with your previous company, Volpit. Volbite, Volpit. and uh, your current experience in.
1: Indonesia. Indonesia, <laughs>
0: that we'll discuss more on the last part of the podcast. Yeah. But right now, we want to know more about this volvite experience. So tell us a bit more, about maybe a short introduction about yeah. what was this project? Who did it
1: start? Did it start? Yeah, 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 no, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm happy to share. I think it's an important story. Um, so into my last year uni- university, university, uh, me and two friends um, started a company called Bold Pit. Um, This was in, we had started talking about it in 2011. This was back when like crowdfunding was really coming up and we thought, you know, uh, we're young, we're interesting. (laughs) We want to democratize investments and we're going to come up with an equity crowdfunding platform. So wait, just to put it back in
0: perspective, 2011, which passport are you using and in which country are you living? (laughs) I'm
1: using my Dutch passport and I live in the UK.
0: So you're living in the UK. Uh, you feel like the, the wave coming with the crowdfunding, with more funding into startups and so on, and you feel like there's something
1: to do there? Well, um, one of the big things was at the time, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority of the UK, was the first one who allowed crowdfunding for security. So P2P loans and, and investments to happen online. So they had like, rules and regulations for it. At this point, like, it was still unregulated in the rest of Europe. And I mean, I was in London, so it seemed like an opportunity. Um, so that's how we got to the point of like, yes, this is the way to do it. Uh, London is going to be the next startup hub after um, uh, Silicon Valley uh, and uh, uh, aptly named the Silicon Roundabout of Old Street, if, if anyone knows it. Um, it. That was its nickname for about six months, I believe. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, that was kind of like the opportunity at the time is like, we're going to go do that.
0: It's very interesting, like you saw an opportunity rather than a problem to solve
1: at first, right? Exactly. I think that's the first problem already. Uh, that I think you come into entrepreneurship, is, uh, um, it wasn't what we were doing, wasn't necessarily solving a need or solving a problem. It was just trying to take advantage of an opportunity, of a trend uh, at the time. So,
0: when well, in 2011, you live in London, you see this opportunity coming, and you team up with some people around you. What the people you actually start sharing the idea with? Have you started discussing with friends or you were just telling, like, no, no, you know what? Let's keep it secret. We need to make sure that we make the project perfect before we go live. Or you actually started talking with a few people to make sure that you get the right waves, you get the right understanding of the market, and you start building something?
1: I mean, I have to be completely honest. I, I It wasn't my idea. It was one of my friends who came to me with the idea of crowdfunding. Um, we had been, you know, he, uh, my roommate at the time was basically non-substantive websites of people doing crowdfunding. Uh, and together over a lot of years, we decided, you know, uh, why don't we just take the hard route and try to do this like um, feed investment product, which we, which are online securities.
0: So in 2011, what technical experience, what knowledge you have that both of you can actually pull into the project and make sure that. You complement each other, and we start building something new.
1: So, um, uh, my my uh, I guess not not really technical experience, more of a know-how experience. Was I was finishing up my math um, degree, and I had basically interned at several financial institutions in the summers in between. Um, so, uh, as a twenty-one-year-old me, I thought obviously I understood the entire financial models uh, and the entirety of the investment world, and I could easily set up. An automated uh, investment uh, website that would let people uh, democratize how startup capital works. But so, wait,
0: when you say that, you that's the twenty-eight <laughs> years old you. But come and slap yourself, right? Yes,
1: yes, yes, I would definitely come slap myself. I would tell myself that you don't know anything. Um, but I'm happy that I made that mistake. Uh, but it's at the same time, I was very naive to think that I, I I knew what I was talking about. But we but we very much soon found that out. Um, as we started to get our SDA license to actually run the website, which was a whole another year of an ordeal, um, of complication.
0: <laughs> so now you have the you have the knowledge, let's say, from the financial part of it, and uh, the people around you. What backgrounds, what skills did they bring on the table?
1: Um, so my uh, so I had two partners. Uh, w- one of them was uh, basically. Uh, more of a technical uh, lead, and he had experience. Well, again, it was kind of like based on our degrees, we thought we were experts, which is a very, very cool thing that universities do. Um, uh, they, they they teach you these things, and they think you're ready to basically dictate how to do these things. So the the one partner was a marketing, I would say, you know, degree, uh, and then the uh, third person was, I think it was something kind of like a uh, technical project engineering, but it wasn't engineering. It was more about like how to manage projects on a technical level of, 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 no, of the technical sort. So it's kind of like, how do you manage a development project of like having developers running and managing them, but not actually coding.
0: <laughs> and, um, that's an interesting point because like most of the entrepreneurs, you know, that are listening to us may find difficulty at this stage on the project. They may have the expertise in one field and may not have the technical field. So when you started this one, uh, how did you actually handle the technical part of the project?
1: Well, um, I mean, I took the um, normal route that a lot of entrepreneurs just take at this stage, uh, that don't have a pure uh, CTO view, outsource development. Um, so we found an outsource development team in Estonia, uh, which at the time we thought, you know, Estonia being an incredibly forward country in terms of um, technical development uh, and skill sets, um, seemed like the right move. Uh, and we just decided, you know, that the three of us being key experts in our field, but not really. Um, I want to I uh, 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 just just make that very clear. We're not experts in our field, um, but we per- perceive ourselves to be. Um, uh, ben said, we, we, the three of us can put our heads together to actually make this a success, even though we're outsourcing our, our key uh, business activity.
0: <laughs> I, I really love the introduction of this story because I mean, just <laughs> it reminds me a lot about my, my personal story. But on the side, it's something that lots of entrepreneurs are actually facing. They see an opportunity. They don't understand the real challenge behind it, they don't, the, the real problem they're supposed to solve. They feel they have the right skills. They don't have the right expertise or experience, and they start building a project. Lots of entrepreneurs actually manage to, to go over this step and yeah. succeed on the, on the project. So Yeah,
1: I, 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 wanna, I think I, what I should make clear is, like in no way do I think it's the wrong way to do things. I think it's the hardest way to do things. Um, One of the things I think if I would have gone back is, you know, I would have definitely tried to make or made the effort to find a CPO or co-founder who has a pure technical skill level so you could take things a little bit slower. But I think the biggest issue with that was is when you're hiring an outsourced development company, they're hired to do things for you. They're not hired to challenge it. Uh, And a lot of times what happens is that you don't get the best technical solution because their job is not to make, give you the best solution. Their job is to give you a solution that you're happy with and content, um, with. So basically what happened was that we had all these hypotheses and all these assumptions of what was the best format of creating a equity crowdfunding platform with no real technical side to challenge it on a day-to-day basis. So well,
0: it, it's an interesting element to mention because like you have the idea, you have the team, and you just start developing. But... Did you put some, um, did you start putting some milestones, you know, telling yourself, you know what, guys, that's going to be the, the minimal viable product, the MVP we have to work on, that we look this way, we put that much time, that much money, and at this stage, we let it run for N weeks, N months, N days, before we if actually, people start using it. Yes. Did you get this mindset back then, knowing the fact that you were pretty young as an entrepreneur, or did you just say, you know what, guys, uh, we, have, we have developers behind, let's keep pushing the ideas we have, and let's keep
1: moving on. I think yeah, I mean, I mean, my my partners at the time were pretty well read in terms of like uh, um, entrepreneurship theories of you know being iterative, taking steps to build it. Um, but I think if you if we had a l- little bit more experience or if we would have challenged our own hypotheses a bit more, maybe we would have not jumped to. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that our MVP was not minimal. <laughs>
0: It was like a
1: <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. I mean, we could have stopped halfway through and realized that some of the things don't work. And um, we had gotten very far into the development process before we even realized that some of the features that we assumed to be essential have actually stopping.
0: How <laughs> did uh, you come up with
1: this assumption?
0: Is something you try to get from the people? It's just uh, the feeling you have from the, the needs you saw in the market.
1: Well, you know, I feel like there's always a balance between researching. Um, And and one of the things is like you could endlessly interview experts. You could endlessly interview people to get different um, sides, different opinions on the same things. Uh, But I think is there is a minimum amount of research that you can get. And if we would have hit that minimum amount of research between, you know, uh, investors and uh, angels and VCs who are looking to maybe invest or potentially considering investing online. but also a lot of entrepreneurs like ourselves of different stages and different um, industries, how they perceive to want to put their projects online. Um, And not to go into too much detail of like all of the features that were not working. um, It had a lot to do with, you know, us um, assuming that entrepreneurs want or need specific
0: is this relation with the fact that you saw an opportunity rather than uh, a problem in the market?
1: Yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right. I, 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 and I think that's one of the common misconceptions is that they're one and the same thing. It's just like thinking, oh, you know, there's an opportunity for there's a demand. That's not true. Um, because if we would have done, I guess, like, you know, a, at least like 12 months of research, which, you know, sometimes is the right amount. I mean, a temporal, like you can't look at it in time. But if we would have taken those 12 months to kind of just look at, and talk to different entrepreneurs, we would have very much seen that just because you're allowed to crowdfund online your investment is not necessarily actually the best thing to do as an entrepreneur, it's what you want. And the problem really lied more in the sense of trying to filter through the different uh business plans rather than enabling all the different business plans. So
0: no, I mean, the two of you you're you're gonna talk how much time did it take you before you actually could deliver something out on the market? You know, how much time did it take you before you had the platform ready? And how much time did the how much money, sorry, the three of you put on the initial project?
1: Um so uh at the time in London there were these great things called um startup loans, um, that you could basically like get at very low interest rates if your business banks worked, and I think we had like we were given five key each, you know, being like European Union citizens, you are entitled towards it. I don't remember the details exactly, so don't quote me on that. But um, there's around 10 or 15,000 in startup capital that we started with. That was basically the initial build uh, and everything around that. And we didn't take any salaries or anything, obviously, uh, and, but it was kind of like putting all that money into development. Um, but what we realized really fast is like once the basic uh, platform was built, we still needed the FCA license. And the SCA license costs anything between 125,000 to 150,000 pounds. So trying to find seed investors who at the time, you know, saw the uh, the value of getting a license was relatively difficult because it wasn't necessarily about this, you know, believing in the project. It was also a long-term RDS project. Um, uh, and uh, I, t- time-wise, I think it took us about, I mean... We spent six months spending the fifteen thousand to build the initial product, and then it, it, after that, there was a few months of trying to find seed investors. Um, and but one of the things we realized is that the FCA license had inherent value. So our seed investors we initially f- then found our angels then saw and and we convinced them in the fact like look if we get the FCA license if everything fails we can still just sell the company at like value to get whatever money was put in back yeah well that was that was one of my backups (laughs) because um uh, already i think like about a year in we started realizing that there's a risk that it might not work out as we thought um so uh you know pessimistic me um uh, had already kind of like thought about okay what are ways out and the good thing was having done some research is if you have a website that has an official license from an official regulator of a product authority, you have inherent value to sell. So we had seed investors who were happy to take the high risk of creating a equity crowdfunding platform uh, because they knew that there was a chance, at least, that there was an easy sell option if everything doesn't work out.
0: So, um, let me, uh,
1: please, excuse yeah. me on, no, no, no. on
0: this part of course, but uh, especially with the distance we have now. Yeah. This so the three of you gathered together, put £15,000 uh, in the project. Yeah. Spend six months to develop a project before you realize that you actually need more license to go live and you ran out of cash. So you start looking for exit on the project even before you start having users oh, on the platform. Oh,
1: sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I think you misunderstood me. So we didn't look at exit. Uh, we thought at the time we need the license, but we started out pitching. So we were pitching the project to everyone, pitching the light, like saying, what do you need? And obviously, you know, they're going to ask, what do you need the money for? Well, eighty percent of the because we were trying to raise two hundred thousand um, pounds. What do you? We said we needed two hundred thousand pounds to get the license, because you know one hundred fifty thousand is at the license, and then we only need about fifty thousand to run the platform with the license, which should give us enough, you know, uh, a breathing room to be able to at least fund a few startups to get the ball rolling, and then we could raise more money after that.
0: So I mean, after the initial six months of developing the project, have you started onboarding the first users, or it was still?
1: Yes. So uh, one of the things we realized pretty fast is that um, um, the platform with the best product, um, because between the equity crowdfunding platforms, investors are platform agnostic. They're going to go to any platform that they want to to find the best deals. So it was all about finding the best deals. Um, Now, the problem is, you know, being, you know, three young guys and trying to convince other entrepreneurs to stake their livelihood and their chance of pitching onto the platform at the time it was relatively difficult to do. Um, and it was more about, you know, trying to create a little bit of camaraderie of, you know, we're a startup and you guys are a startup. But if you guys put your uh, a project on a platform, then, you know, that's all, if we win, you guys win and the system wins. So it was a, a bit of, a, 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 of an emotional fun.
0: And uh, who was in part of this pitching in the team? Were the team? But it, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah,
1: it was mostly me. Yeah, this one you can still feel <laughs> behind the, the, the yeah. top of that.
0: Um, so let's say let's go back to the main idea of the talk today is like why do you think your main mistake at this stage during the first six months was to be a wannabe entrepreneur instead of being an entrepreneur? Because you draw us you draw us you, you something that most of the entrepreneurs may relate to. It's like you need to raise money. You need to get people to agree. You need to develop the product. Then you go live. Then you see what happened. So, what do you see happen the first six months that make you feel like you actually didn't do exactly the right move? So,
1: so I I think I think one of the things that happened, and especially, and this is like not just the six months developing, like even like afterwards, into like trying to raise the money and everything around it, is that um, you try to well, you start drawing assumptions in your brain of what a successful entrepreneur does, right? And you try to typify that as like a type A entrepreneur is a go-getter at every networking event. He's in the scene. Everyone knows their platform. It's kind of like the it way to go. People write about you. It's it's a PR thing. And you get lost in this kind of like marketing scheme of thinking, you know, if I want to get the best deals, it's kind of like, I got to be a wheel and deal kind of like guy that knows the, everything. So you end up Putting and and uh, after you know me as well, like you end up putting a lot more importance into the perception of that your startup is doing well, rather than whether your actual product is doing well. So it's much more about just you know trying to manually get deals through on the platform rather than actually believing or having the crowd invest. You know we were looking into getting projects on that were just saying like, look, you guys already have your investors. Just process it through our platform we won't take any fee we just need the marketing and the PR to show that the platform works and that will then kickstart this entire feel of like yes we believe in the democracy of crowdfund
0: we positively back then when you we I mean this kind of... the,
1: the, the funny thing is like most other equity crowdfunding platforms were doing that too I mean next to Vulpit there was crowdcube and Cedars and I think those are like the two big ones if you google it you'll it usually comes up with those three um, It was all about convincing the guys who had already had their done deals to put the done deals and publicize them on your investment platform. So it was almost more important to give the perception of the deal flow than the actual deal flow, because the the big problem was that at the time, you know, setting up that kind of platform, you're getting like a hundred business plans, maybe, and like 99 of them, you already know in your gut, they're not going to get funded and maybe one will. And then you know that that one who might get funded, they're probably getting solicited by the other platform. So all of a sudden, you're moving from like this beautiful concept of trying to, you know, do this equity crowdfunding into this like kind of fight of like I have to convince them, put it on my platform rather than their platform. You're not actually making any money because then it's like forfeiting fees, uh, whatever you're hanging out, and literally it just becomes this. You get lost in this like entrepreneur feel, um, of 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 just trying to create perceptions, um, and and. Like Keep in mind, like I'm not a technical background guy, like, so most of these discussions w- had nothing to do with technology. Most of the discussions had little to do with actual like incentives. A lot of it had to do with them. Well,
0: you're out on the field, you're out on the ground, on the you're thinking about the platform, you're meeting people, you're trying to convince them to actually publish their project on your platform. How much time are you spending on that? Is it like your full-time occupation or something you're doing on the top of something else?
1: I mean, at the time, I had, we had given me the title of the head of business development. So we, it was, quote, unquote, my full-time job to basically just be out all the time. Um, I have to be completely honest. Like, if I, if now 28-year-old me would meet 21-year-old me, I wouldn't hire myself. <laughs> I wouldn't ask myself to join the project. Um, I mean, apart from next to, like, mindset, I think also the complete lack of technical skills to bring to a team. Um, is something that, you know, a young startup definitely doesn't need. I think you need a base ground. Just being enthusiastic or just having a great attitude is not enough. Um, and uh, I would say this to like a lot of people that, you know, if you come out of university and you feel that you're lacking, um, it sounds pretty harsh, but it's probably true. Um, you know, you you need something that you can bring on a day-to-day level other than networking. Um, that the Networking is not a a skill to be proud of. I think it's something that can be learned quite easily just by practicing and putting yourself out there. Um, but really what people should be focusing on is uh, bringing a little bit more to the table.
0: Um, what consequences this part of the development of your project add on the full project itself? Because like you mentioned that you're going out, which sounds like your occupation anyway, because you're in charge of the development, mm-hmm. so you need to go out, you need to meet people. And then um, what do you how do you think this impact actually the development of the project? Like, were you bringing back the wrong feedback? Were you bringing back the wrong qualities? Well, how do you think this actually impacts the project itself? I, I think it,
1: it, the the problem was it was way too early in the in the in the lifetime of the startup to split, you know, responsibilities in that sense. If you're three people at that stage, everyone should be every every like everyone should care about everything. Everyone should look at everything. Everyone should know everything that was going on. Um, it was very much so like um, you know me myself. I had put myself in a position of oh you know what I know my role and I like doing these things. Therefore you know out of sight out of mind. I just I I, I just need them to make sure that you know the the product the the, the project goes or the sorry, the product is being built um, rather than actually just saying look I have a third ownership therefore I should you know literally know every single thing that's going on and even if I don't understand it I should read into it and learn more about it so that if someone really asks me a question like if i'm really supposed to be the head of the business development running out and presenting the platform i'm meeting another person who has a lot of skills and ask about it i should be able to have to i mean yes obviously like i'm not going to be able to like go into like how the code is built and everything but you should at least understand the basics so that if someone asks you know around how your server is built or how you're storing your data or how you're basically you know your, your digital marketing works on like actual base level of like how you get your seo even that that's something that you really need to learn into and that's not something that you can just um uh excuse me but like you can't just like listen to podcasts and be like okay now i understand marketing to its core no you gotta you gotta spend time you gotta you know you know if you don't know then ask people about it well,
0: let's back to the 28 years <laughs> old you took into the 21 years old if now I give you a red pen, and you have to go back in the past, go back to the future, and you have to actually draw the line off where that you should not cross in this field to make sure that you stay focused on the project. Where will you draw those lines around the 21 years old you year to make sure that you actually stay focused on your project? I don't just go
1: wild on the rest. Before I answer that question, I want to make one of the things clear. your year old me is happy that I fit Let's just put that one thing aside. Like I'm happy that it, um, I have that experience. Now, are there things that I regret doing that probably wouldn't have affected the failure that much? Yes, for sure. Um, I think uh, uh, on the personal sense, if I could have, if I could talk to 21 year old me and set a couple of boundaries, um, I think one of the things is to to be a little bit more self aware of your contribution to a project. Um, and maybe I could have even walked with away more learning. Um, one of the things that I definitely regret is not having been more involved in, you know, the, the actual building process of it and believing that, you know, all things are equal and the problem is in, in a, in a tech startup, um, the harsh reality is not all processes are equal. Building the product is more important than marketing. I believe in the first couple of months. Once the product reaches a like a station, uh, especially a platform, then you can discuss, you know, platform population, and then you can discuss your marketing strategies and so on. But before that, everyone should be focusing on the product. Everyone should be focusing on the feedback on the product, and the whole team should be focusing on really challenging your own assumptions and really challenging whether you're fulfilling a need or just taking advantage of some trend. Um, let's try
0: to translate this into yeah. a concrete example or tips for the people listening to us. What does this yes. look like? Will it be like um, an assumption document with this? That's the assumption I have. That's how much time we put to demonstrate it. And that's if, if the answer is yes, we should go there. If the answer is no, we should go there. How would you um, concretize? concretize well, sorry, yeah. sorry for being French.
1: Yeah. <laughs> how would you represent
0: this part uh, to help people to go over this? I
1: think I mean, there's two ways to do it. I mean, one of the things is you need to challenge your assumptions, and one of the things is you need to challenge and iterate your feature releases. So, being a little bit technical about it. Um, feel like even before you build any features, you have a lot of assumptions of what you believe the product should achieve. Um, and then I think a good exercise is... Um, I'm sorry. A good exercise would be to actually write them all out but also say them out loud a lot of people just think the assumptions and they act upon them so as let's say you're a group of three co-founders you, you take a pen and paper a lot of times for me personally whiteboards and markers really help like putting it out big just a piece of paper very small. i don't know why visualizing it small makes it very hard to think about but when you write it out big usually you can you know draw on a big board and put it out there you don't have to necessarily have a numerical system but what you can and should probably do is try to just be very uh, blunt and take turns playing devil's advocate. Especially if you're in a group discussion, if one person keeps on playing devil's advocate, it's not enough. Everybody should be criticizing yourself and criticizing each other, um, almost to like a personal level to see how far you can push it. Because look, if these are really your co-founders, you're gonna be spending way more time with them and people are gonna be way more annoyed. Kind of like small brain exercise should be a cake.
0: So we do a kind of, uh, let's say like, an assumption canvas that you can uh, revisit every now yeah. and then to make sure that you're actually heading the right direction. That the assumptions you have can actually be
1: demonstrated. I mean, one of the things, especially with assumptions, is you can break it down into like what kind of people you need to talk to. So I'll give an example. Um, uh, we assumed that um, uh, so one of the assumptions involved in in the beginning was uh, we were saying that. People uh, wanted streamlined business plans so that investors could, you know, look kind of compare them equally. So it's much easier to create a business plan. So the assumption was, therefore, people just want a multiple choice question answer form to basically then auto build a business plan, right? Well, we didn't realize, and if we would have checked this with way more entrepreneurs than we did, because initially, obviously, you know, you talk to 10 or 15, they're like, yeah, sure, you know, then I can run my business plan faster. That's amazing. The people who really care about their business and are entrepreneurs they don't want to be answering the multiple choice answer question to, to show their vision, to share what they have. They want to show their pitch. And um, the best business plans usually don't follow this executive summary, therefore and here for, and these are the market gaps. That comes much later at an investment stage. When an angel investor wants to see, or see if they're interested or not, the intention span is much slower. I'm sorry, much lower. You, They don't have time to read through, you know, an auto-builded, you know, five-page business plan. They just want to quickly see what's out there. And they will judge on their, like, initial instinct reaction of whether it's good or not. So by, like, these two groups, these two assumptions could have already been broken. But we didn't because we assumed, you know, because we believe that, you know, for most business plans, and, you know, if we would have challenged that on the product level, then maybe we would have, we would have figured out right. earlier that that wasn't a necessary feature.
0: The first one you actually work on it will be like to find a way to take your assumption and make sure like they go in the right direction. Yeah. Do you think there is another one that you could actually like advise to the 21 years old? And once again, yeah. uh, all the aim of the podcast is really not to, to go against like the initial project. Yeah. It's more like what tips could you give yeah. to yeah. yourself with the experience you have right
1: now? People who you think will disagree with you. Um, you can learn a lot more from people disagreeing with you than people agreeing with you. I mean, most of the projects that I do nowadays I actively find you know people who actually have failed in it before um, because you can learn from, you know, what, maybe like a lot of people maybe who have a tip on their shoulders, who like the industry, um, people who are threatened by what you might do. Like, go to people who will... Literally, that you believe will disagree with you, so you can see where the holes will be plugged. Because their, um, um, their 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 goal is to stop you from doing it, right? And that's who you should be listening to. It was like, where are all the problems with my solution? Um, and and then on the other side, and this is the most important question: is like, are you actually fulfilling a need? And if you can't answer that question, what need you are fulfilling that you're you're not? You probably shouldn't be doing your project. It sounds terrible. I don't want to discourage anyone. <laughs> you no, know, I think it's one of the
0: most valuable advice you can actually give to yeah. people So first try uh, to make sure of your assumption, then make sure that you really talk about your idea with people that we not agree with you apart from your mom, because your mom is here to tell you that you're amazing, yeah. not the other people.
1: I think I think I think one of the big things is, you know, uh, an idea only exists once you start saying it or telling it to people. An idea will only start existing if you start writing it out. So even, okay, so maybe start with that. Like if you're too embarrassed to say it to anyone, start writing it out. Just write it out on a piece of paper, on a computer, on Word, text file, whatever you're comfortable with, and then start explaining it to people and then see, you know, like and no matter what the reaction is, like whether they think you're crazy, whether they think it's the best idea ever, even if you're scared of people copying, just say the idea. I I, I feel like this, this people being afraid of people copying you is this paranoia is a little bit too much.
0: <laughs> so that's that's one of the things you wrote on the Mysticos.co is like I um, to tell people, don't keep the ID for yourself, so what advice could you actually give to people who tend to think that no, I, I need to keep secret my ID because I don't want people to copy it because whatsoever reason what advice, what recommendation can you give those people to make sure that they don't hold the ID for themselves but they make sure that they share the ID to get whatever out of it
1: I mean, that one's, that one's a difficult one to answer mostly because like like, I would never tell people to change in this, this. like, if that's who you are, if you're a person who is, you know, paranoid about your passions and, and secretive about your life, like, and you're probably not going to survive in, in the entrepreneurship world. And you should be, probably be doing something else. Um, the one thing that I've learned from most entrepreneurs who failed and succeeded, like, no matter what but who actually strive in this kind of society of insecurity uh, of like no stability are usually the people who are completely unafraid to share their ideas because those people attract other peoples with solutions and with open criticism because you're open-minded. The, 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 the the most interesting part, and especially now, you know, being in Southeast Asia, which a lot of people perceive to be a sort of wild, wild west of entrepreneurship, which I don't, I really don't. I think people should really, really have a look at it more. Is that the most successful people here are the most bold ones, Um, and there's still a lot of paranoia around of copying ideas. But if someone does, it's inevitable that someone will look at what you've done and try to do the same thing. It's it's always going to happen, and the more energy you try to protect, you know, this without a legal barrier. I mean, literally. I mean, look at China. I mean, there's still, you know, startups that you know come out of that whole gray area of everyone copying each other and everyone trying to do it better. You just got to do it better than them. And that's a whole part of like, it's really shitty out. <laughs> I no, know that. I, but... I, actually,
0: I actually like the idea behind it because that's something you're really most of them to do with me. At some point, have the same questions to the channel did, and the answer you're giving makes lots of sense, at least to me. And I do hope for the people listening to the podcast.
1: I mean, I, I just want to give one thing is one of the things that I learned from a lot of angel investors and VCs that I talked to. The biggest turnoff is entrepreneurs who are super secretive or, like, or paranoid about NDAs. It is really, really the biggest turnoff. I mean, like, I, they don't care if you think you have the best idea of the century your core IP idea is a lot of times not even 50% of your project. And a lot of times maybe even only 20, 80% is execution. Uh, it's literally just how do you execute and how do you actually survive in this kind of like in the country that you're in? I mean, a good example would be for example, Indonesia, um, you're running on a lot of red tape. A lot of people would say it's the, the, it's the worst place to do a startup. I completely disagree. It's just the hardest place. But if you manage to, circumvent the red tape if you manage to do that 80 percent of execution in this country you have one of the youngest uh, most active viral population that's still growing that's still adapted into mobile internet and i mean that alone i mean we're looking at a potential of like a group of 100 million people uh, between the ages of 18 and 25 uh, sorry 18 and 30 um that that's the, the whole population of most european countries plus some so um Again, it's 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 all about execution and and really challenging yourself whether you're fulfilling a need and not just trying to you know secretly obsessively try to take advantage of a friend.
0: So let's say like the three boundaries you focus on will be like take uh, your assumptions, work on the solution,
1: and take your assumptions, work on the solutions, and what is the third one? Sorry, what is what is the third one? I think. I think the work on the solution where you can break up I- into two parts is because it's the process, but it's also the introspection it is uh, understanding when you don't know something and not just assuming that, you know, you can either just hire someone for it. Um, because at the end of the day, if you're trying to be an entrepreneur, you're 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 you should be able to strive to understand a little bit of everything, be able to understand when you need someone, um, not just hire someone. to your
0: them differently. Now, okay. Let's say, like, do the 28 years old you. You have the chance back in 2011, and do the job of the, the 21 year old. Oh my God! What would be the three things you would actually do on the spot straight away? So let's say you have the experience. You you know what happened in the past, and you know you can't change everything, but you know you have the experience of yeah. what happened in the past. So what would be the three actions you would actually implement in this case?
1: So um uh, now and and for some reason I only really after I failed building one um I would have tried to move away from creating a business model that's based on quantity of startups uh, really much more on quality of startups um I think uh one of the things that I had gotten really used to is you know you would read one book and it would all be about scaling 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 right. And it's just that the the problem was, but you you don't understand the concept of how to imply it, right? Uh, Sorry, apply it, not imply. Um, And I think one of the first things I would have done, I would have completely not started looking for funding six months after. I would have tried to make the stretch the 15000 And also, I would have found a fourth co-founder who could be an actual CTO uh, and then spend more time of actually understanding myself. What the product phase is, and maybe stretch out the product phase instead of being six months, try to stretch it out to 12 months of actually building, iterating, building, iterating, building, iterating. And by iterating, I mean testing, implying the feedback, and bringing it back. Um, I probably would have started bringing on a much stronger advisory board in terms of people who are active in the space, uh, and i and the ambition would probably try to be cross-regional much faster than just being focused on London. Um, One of the things that people underestimate is that, you know, um, trying to get startups, you have to look in all different nooks and crannies and London in itself is a great city, but uh, it's also very limited or was limited at the time into what you got We We just thought, okay, you know, we're too, we were, I I don't want to say lazy, but we were just like everything we have, right? We should have been going out and learning from people in Amsterdam, which is a great, great hub for uh, startups, by the way. Um, in terms of like energy tech, Agritech, um, Berlin. I mean, okay, maybe not as much, but in Madrid, also some really, really cool stuff coming out of Barcelona, really taking up the advantage that, you know, we, we were right there and maybe just taking a little bit more time researching, a little bit more time understanding what is really the need. Because I, I think it's unfair to say that there was no need at all. I do think there was a certain need. We just completely missed it. <laughs>
0: I love the honesty behind it, and you pre really, 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 in fact, um, like, reduce the time to produce a feature on the website and test it. Yeah. That's one very important element for the gap between a an entrepreneur and I'm an entrepreneur, which means, like, I have the... I know that I need to test fast, so I develop less and I push harder. Uh, I love the fact that you mentioned having a board of people we can actually... You know, a board of experts, a board of people... In the industry, we can actually tell you uh, you, you're going in the right direction, look a bit more on this side. It makes definitely uh, sense on that. And the last point that you mentioned, which is to make sure that you have someone in house who can build a project with you. I mean, if you manage to get... If you manage to go back in the past, go back to the future, implement the three months, most likely the project will be like so much (laughs) different. But as you mentioned, if you're here on the podcast tonight, it's because you had this experience. And the three elements actually provide uh, makes a lot of sense, and we'll be happy to go more in detail in the note of the podcast to explain people how to, how to use it and how to do it better on that. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're gonna jump soon on the last uh, the, the last part that we really want to know. You know, like how did this experience change your life? <laughs> but before that, just tell us what is the most fucked up thing that happened to you during those months back there.
1: Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say most maybe the thing that, I would say <laughs> maybe the thing that hit me the most about the, the process is that uh, one of the, um, well, it was a combination of things. It's it's really being a boss for the first time. And I think um, uh, towards the end of it, when we had, you know, we were under the delusion of that it was growing and we had investments so we were hiring people and bringing in interns. Um, you know, you hire friends and and people working for you. I think the most fucked up thing that you know I did or we did or happened to me <clears> at <throat> that period is when when it came to like the boiling point of realization that it wasn't going to keep on going. Um, I think the most fucked up thing that we did is asking everyone to keep on working for no money, um, and then it just kind of all blowing up and becoming this like emotional mess that put a lot of strains on like friendship and 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 and. Being completely uh, 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 under uh, experienced managers at the time of handling everything completely wrong. And I mean, coming into like verbal uh, altercations and interns leaving after like a month. And uh, and I guess like it, it, it I mean, I don't want to say I, I mean, I'm making it sound like a really dramatic thing. Like that, it was it was a nice working environment, which is a lot of passive aggressiveness and then a lot of like fights happening over drinking. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I can't really pinpoint one fucked up thing that actually, no, when we were trying to, uh, uh, release our office, <coughs> we had to end up convincing this lady who wanted to turn it into like a bondage store. So that was maybe an interesting fucked up part. But, um, but I think it was the biggest thing was feeling that I fucked over friends that I had hired for this dream and then trying to hide the fact that the company was going down for like two months um because you know you're just panicking right because you're going from this mindset of everything is going well as supposed to to like wait a minute we're not really reaching any of our targets there's and we're spending way too much and the money is just like going down the train and was it is being spending on i mean i could i guess i could tell a whole story of things that we, like stuff that we started doing that we should have never done to make the money stretch
0: <laughs> really, we should this in a bonus. I love the bonus. I know the most fucked thing that can happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Simon, I really love it. Now it's gonna take us to the last part of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Like we wanna know how did this experience serve you? Because for what we can understand, this experience has been like technically awesome. You got access to uh, Brian people. This is uh, startups. You learn lots of things. So now you're gonna know. We need to know actually how did this impact <laughs> your life because we're to get the same ceiling left for us later. So we want to know how did you use and how did you pivot on this experience. If you like the podcast, want us to interview more entrepreneurs and share with you the best failures and experiences ever, you can make a little difference. By visiting mistakeurs.co, you can support our work with a contribution started at less than a dollar per month. Just visit any pages and click on the support us button. You can cancel the subscription at any time. And in the time being, we'll work on one of the thematics you ask us. So it's simple. Visit Mr. and spread the love. Simon, it's time. You see that the startup is actually going down. I do imagine that the money is running out, that you're losing faith on the project, that you start having fight with the partners, fight with the people who initially supported the project. So explain us, how did you support the project until the end? Tell us about the last few weeks, the last few months on this project before you actually
1: closed it. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think there's like a few loose ends that we had to tie up. Once obviously, you know, we were renting an office, which we had to like, which we found that bondage company to take over. Um, And then, uh, you you know, helping some of the interns and employees to move on to other uh, jobs. But the biggest thing was trying to kind of like scrape something out of a sale for investors. We knew that we had the FCA license. We knew that we had an investor database and we knew that we could sell it. Luckily enough, there was a Chinese wealth management company who came along and really like minimum price uh, bought it out. Uh, and we could pay some money back to the investors at least as as good faith. Um, and that's kind of like how we closed it out. I mean, it, it was a, it was like a four or five month ordeal. I knew about, I knew about two or three months before we actually finalized the sale that I was going to leave London um, mostly because the entire experience had, I guess, really shown me not just my own inability in that sense or immaturity, but also it shown that, you know, that, For my personal brand of entrepreneurship, that being in London wasn't the the right environment.
0: Um, What element did you did push you, you, know, to the conclusion like it's time to close, it's time to, it's time to, it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Whether like any specific event, any specific meeting. Well, well, uh,
1: well one of our one one of our co-founders had left uh, already, like. That, like that, <laughs> that,
0: that, uh, yeah, he left with the keys. You know? right, he
1: left like one of one of the co-founders had left. I think about eight months before we closed, and so that was already kind of like a circulating factor in, in the back of your mind, you and play like, you know, what if he was right? What if it does fail? What if it you know, doesn't work out, and I think by the end of it, I mean, uh, when we started the sailing process, me and the other co-founder were very honest to each other already, saying like, "Look, we had a good run, but we didn't. <laughs> but we had a run, um, and and we tried, uh, and we learned a lot from it. And how do we conclude it the best? And, and towards the end, I think, I think the last four months taught me more in terms of, of introspection than the entire. Uh, first two years. Um, just because like it was such a tough process where you have to be so honest with yourself to be able to complete it properly that the only option was to be super honest with yourself. And I think those four months were so um, important that kind of like the the couple of years after that, it made it a lot easier to process, but it made it also a lot easier to immediately apply everything that I'd learned.
0: So, yeah, you, you, you feel it's time to go. The conformer left, and you take to the It's something which is not that simple to do, because closing a company is not something simple. This is going a lot into yourself, into your ego, into your self-esteem.
1: Ego, yes.
0: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not easy to, to fire people. It's not easy to close a company, especially when yeah. you put so much effort into it. So taking four months to close it is actually something uh, something awesome. But um, let's say like, yeah. now you, you're closing the company, mm. it's time to, you know, to give lock back the, door, the key yeah. to lock the door. Um, what are you taking with you out of this experience at this stage, just when you close the door?
1: At this stage, it was a, it was a big, big shot to my ego, I think at the time. Uh, I had set myself like very ambitious goals uh, because I imagined myself to be this. Uh it, it, it because you think you're very special. <laughs> it's 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 and and I think um my, my mom keeps saying my sure <laughs> you know when my girlfriend say that that can be to you. I okay, I, th- I think coming from my mom I still believe her. But uh I think the biggest thing is that um you your the voice inside your head changes. Um because it goes from uh, head in the sand ignoring uh to much more listening because like getting smacked in the face by reality is one of is the most refreshing thing that you can get um and you might not know it in the short term and i sure didn't but it's much more like taking a fresh dip in the pool than it is getting slapped in the face it's, really,
0: uh, it's, it's really mandatory for for young people you know to get the ego smashed on the wall least a few times you they actually yeah. go up
1: there yeah i mean look it's it's a uh high school in suburbs and boarding school and university in the city and, and coming from, you know, a, a, a recent background is, or or a well off background is that you get coddled. You you just like society isn't as harsh or as mean to you. Um and because you have a lot of you're so dependent on other people. And and I think the thing is with entrepreneurship, there's no safeties. You know, there's there's no one OK, well, if you don't do it, there's someone else in the company who will pick up the slack because, you know, the company will still do it. If you're an entrepreneur, if you are if you don't do it, it doesn't happen. So if it all fails, that means you fucked up. You know, there's no other way around it. There's no point of blame. There's not saying like, oh, you know, it didn't work out because our competition or someone copied our idea. Like it had nothing to do with that. It was literally it was our inability to fulfill what we thought was that demand. Uh, because that demand didn't
0: exist. a So you're closing the door, you're getting this big refresh on your ego. Uh, now the voice in your head are making much more sense to you that you can actually maybe understand them better. Maybe you learn the missing language yeah. you know that you needed to understand. Uh, right now, I mean, it's been a year this happened. Yeah. What experience do you still carry on with you? What is the thing that you always keep, you know, closing you, you know, like, I've already done that. I can't do it again because I know it's wrong. I need to take care of it. What could be the, the thing, or maybe the two things, or three, if you're lucky, that you could actually mention right now?
1: Well, one of the things that I usually do is I just assume my assumptions are wrong. Um, and, and going from that perspective, you're always trying to prove yourself right to yourself, which is much more reasonable thing to do than proving yourself right to other people. Um, so... Currently, you know, being in Indonesia now for the past almost four years, um, and most of my projects, you know, they're still running, they're still live. Most of my companies here, um, and I, you know, have other management team running them or partially sold them, um, but I think the big part of the success is that all of them from day one, uh, even if they were just an idea, uh, they spent six six to twelve months crafting just the assumption itself that we're actually that it's necessary that there's a point and. Raising money for something that is definitely a need fulfillment and has like a basic MVP people that have like barely any money is very easy money to raise, but it's also much more easier to execute because you usually naturally have a right team to also do it because you spent so much time trying to prove whether your initial assumption was right, that it's a, you know, need that you're fulfilling.
0: The main thing to be
1: with you right now is making well one of the things I want to clear out you are not never going to know 100 percent that this right for everyone right but in your context you know in your regional context for you know let's say the Jakarta market or let's say Bali or let's say Southeast Asia which is still quite a big um is your assumption correct that people want XYZ if they are in XYZ position and that's like a very general assumption. And then you have to go a level deeper and you have to go a level deeper and really talking to people that you believe will try to disagree with you. Uh, because if if you yourself still feel very confident that that's something that you can go on and build a business around, and that's the important thing, build a business around is the next part, then you can move on to actually creating a company. Otherwise, it's just, I mean, it's just a service provider, then... Personally, I, I, like, I'm, not, I'm not a big believer in just service provision. Like, if you're going to do that, then just do that. But there's a lot of experts out there who provide services. But you, like, you want to build a product that solves a problem.
0: I really love the way you send, send it that um, I mean, find your problems, build a business around this, and then make the company. It's like I receive sometimes, you know, on the on the website, Mystickers dot co, receive some message of people who tell us, you know, it's like, what would be the best structure, uh, the best company to start this business? I was just like, but why are you solving? It? No, I mean, I want to do something that it's just like, so do it, and they come with the excuse, you know, it's like, yeah, but no, I need license. No, you don't need license. You just need to be live. You'll find it all for the company first. Try to make sure that is something you definitely sum up very well on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's the one thing that is is always. You know, and I fall in that trap as well. You know, sometimes, you know, and, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an entrepreneurship plug. If, you know, you have almost like work ADHD. You always see ideas everywhere and you're always interested and in talk about everything all the time. And it's just like, this is great and that's great. Um, but a lot of times what you start realizing is a lot of the things that you're initially attracted to are just actions, right? they are like, oh, that could be a really cool thing to do, but it's not a good business. So those are like two different things. So you'll see a lot of young guys or or younger, I'm i so young. Younger <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> young younger guys come out and just define a specific action. Just like, wouldn't it be cool if blah 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 does blah blah blah? I'm like, all right, yes, but what's the business? You know what what and and it's it's if if I were 21 and someone would ask me like, what's your business model? I'd be like, why are you being so lame about it? But like now, being in the position that I am and. Having gone through a couple of other exits now that actually worked out, um, you start realizing, yeah, what the fuck is your business model is a really important question to answer, and you can't just you know go around relying on you know this is you know this is the interesting part. It's like you have to go through all the boring stuff because that's just how it works. Is you know you you still have to you know realize where the money is coming from. You still have to realize how your cover is being like uh, your costs are being covered, and uh, yeah. There's a whole list of things that I could go into that are boring but important that everyone should probably just understand themselves. Like being an entrepreneur and just saying I don't do finance doesn't work.
0: So, as mentioned, that uh, actually entrepreneurs may need. We have like a few books, a few blogs, a few media that we could actually share with the, the people listening to the podcast I, I, to go through this boring yeah, stuff. I extension. mean, I
1: mean, I mean, I I think not for the. I mean, obviously for the boring stuff. So I think this, you know i think rather than talking reading okay and this is my personal thing rather than reading a book that's you know about it talk to someone who's an expert in that service you know like if you have an issue with you know finance or account or bookkeeping talk to someone who's an expert in bookkeeping or accounting because even if you don't know one find one because then you have a conversation about it. i feel like a person person conversation is more, more worthwhile i think with books or podcasts rather than trying to Assume that you're going to get a lot of practical information. Assume that you're going to get a lot of critical thinking about it. Um, get stuff that makes that gets your brain going. I mean, for me personally, I barely read anything startup related anymore or, uh, or podcasts that are startup related, mostly because I feel like for my own brain, and this is, again, a very personal thing, personable thing. For everyone, it's slightly different. You need to get something from podcasts and, and books where you're almost passively even afterwards still thinking about what they said, and thinking about, you know, the, the, the points that they made, but also a lot of times what questions that were ask, asking, because, I mean, probably, uh, you know, and, and and this podcast putting aside, because I feel like this podcast might ask the right questions. People should be asking more. Uh, people should be paying more attention to the question that you're asking me than actually the answers that I'm giving. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, I will be asking the questions. But, <laughs> the next few weeks, but, so. but, but I think I think that's the important part, especially, you know, people who listen to the podcast, they should see how your question is specifically being asked. And then people should put themselves, like, if I were in that position, how would I answer that question? I think that's much more of an important exercise to say, oh, okay, the Simon guy, he's saying these things, I should write these things down and do ABC. I mean, by all means... If you have the exact same experience as I do, then maybe it's applicable. But if anything, you should just be inspired to ask yourself the same questions that I'm being asked right now or that I want to ask myself as a 21-year-old. And I think that's much more important And looking at these medias. I mean, blogs for me are very important. Uh, it, it, uh, difficult because I feel like a lot of them are just opinion pieces. Um, And, and books, again, I mean, if it's too self-help oriented, I feel like it's difficult. I like books because especially fiction books, they give me a way to escape my mind. So when I come back towards it, I feel refreshed. You know, I'm not just, you know, stuck in the same world nonstop. And I feel with podcasts, I mean, I love uh, Joe Rogan's podcast just because, like, there's a variety of opinions on the left and the right. And, you know, you see hunters and vegans and you see, you know, conspiracy theorists. And it's interesting to hear how people And I think that's the best thing you can get out of podcasts, especially long format like this. If you get to hear how people think, you get to hear people talk. Like people might think I'm completely annoying, and it's like I don't like the sound of voice. And other people might like, okay, well, I like the kind of things that he's saying. You know, let's explore more into some of the things he said rather than just exploring me. That's good. That's <laughs> good. And, uh, in the podcast, we made in
0: this, uh, this objective you know, to help people ask themselves the wrong question before it's too late, and to help people. To understand that there's something fundamental for entrepreneurs like the easiest person you fool is yourself mm-hmm. and we're here to help you figure out the questions before it's too late for you yes um mm-hmm. simon it's going to be time to, to to wrap up on the podcast so the initial idea today is like what's the main difference between a wannabe entrepreneur and entrepreneur i strongly believe that you gave us some very strong statement on that the first thing for what i understand for what you said and uh, and we'll put it again the conclusion it's the, the main difference between a wannabe entrepreneur and entrepreneur is like a wannabe entrepreneur see opportunities when an entrepreneur will see problems to solve. And behind the problems to solve, as like you mentioned, like I solve the problems, I build a business around it, and I do the rest later. So the day guys, you manage to be in this schema, in this schema, you you're an entrepreneur. As long as you keep thinking like my ID is cool, I don't disclose my ID. Uh, there is definitely something out there. You will be one of the entrepreneurs, and the risk for you will be double. Uh, first, you're gonna lose lots of time and money and get experience out of it, but make sure that you actually, you know, like spot the questions and the and the, the tough questions. As you mentioned, yeah. you know, like challenge yourself. Make sure that you don't just ask the people who think the same, the question, but try to get people who don't agree with you. Yeah. Try to see how is it out there. Talk with people who try the idea. That's all the aim of the podcast. So, Simon, is there a last thing you would like to say before we wrap up?
1: Uh, I mean, I think the last thing I think, I mean, just, you summarize it so equally, is that I, want, I think I want to make sure that people understand like, it's not important to yourself out feel like, shit, yeah, this is not the point. It's to be honest with yourselves. And honest has a lot to do with struggling with your own positive and negative emotions, but also your positive and negative ideas. Of yourself and your idea and I understand that you know people identify themselves with their first startup as like this is my ambition this is what I want um but you know taking the easy way out like listening from someone who's made mistakes and has failed and you know failure really does help but it doesn't mean that you're definitely going to fail so just keep on struggling uh keep on being honest with yourselves and then you're going to figure it out as you go along and to be completely honest, I mean, if failing from your startup doesn't mean you have to keep on being a startup. Getting a job is not a bad option. It's For some people, it works out much better. So I guess all I'm trying to say at the end is just like, figure it out. Don't lie to yourself and try to not be an asshole.
0: One <laughs> last question before we... <laughs> What would you like, let's, let's ask it differently. What would you like to give to the entrepreneur community after this podcast?
1: Um, look, I feel like uh, one of the things that I've been exploring the last four years and now being in Southeast Asia, I feel like I've kind of dug myself into the region quite well. And um, I feel that there's a lot of interesting people out there who maybe like in their home country or in their city. Are not necessarily succeeding for any reason or another. But if anyone out there has any specific questions on Indonesia, Singapore, um, you know, looking at the Southeast Asia region, um has questions about that, um, you know, feel free to ask me. I'm happy to give a little bit of guidance. Uh, on the other side is if you just have any general questions about self-doubt and trying to deal with your co-founders, um, let me know. I, I dealt with that a lot as well.
0: If anyone has a question, feel free to drop it at contact MrCase.co and the question will be like directed to Simon um, whenever needed. Simon, thanks for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, we hope that your experience will serve other people and we hope to have the chance of meeting you again in some of the entrepreneurs event worldwide.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. This was, a, this was really fun talking about it. It's almost very therapeutic to get it out there.
0: <laughs> My pleasure, Simon. We hope you enjoyed this new episode of mystecado.co. If you did, please share the podcast with your friends and fellow entrepreneurs. And if you want to help us to do better for you, don't forget to visit us on mystecado.co. We see you in a week for new interviews and do not forget there is nothing like failure.